Well, it's always great to be here and have the opportunity to worship with the church family here. Uh, we have a number of visitors I see in our audience, and we're certainly thankful that you are here. This on? Now it is. I know, you wanted to hear me better. We do have a number of visitors, and we're certainly uh, thankful for that. Uh, as many of you know, last Sunday... Uh, I was in Hot Springs Village. We celebrated my dad's 80th birthday and uh, went to church with them Sunday morning, which, you know, it's one of the occupational hazards of the job that I have that I don't often get to go to church uh, with them. And uh, it was it was good to be able to do that. But it's always good to uh, to be back home and and to be here worshiping with our church family for several weeks. Again, I'm not going to tell you, you'll just have to guess. But for several weeks, we've been looking at Peter's little letter that in our Bibles is labeled 1 Peter. Uh, And we've been looking at that, that it is Peter's guide to foreigners in this world. And several times within this little letter, Peter uses the words either strangers or travelers or pilgrims or aliens or foreigners And it's obvious that Peter wants to get us to understand that this is not our home. And we sing those songs. We love those songs, don't we? This world is not my home. And here we are, but straying pilgrims and and all of those different things. And, And we sing those songs and we love that idea. And we know that our home is in heaven. But all too often, we get really comfortable here. You know, we begin to feel like we fit in. We begin to feel like we belong here. And so Peter is trying to remind his readers and us as well that this world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven and reminds us of that. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at chapter four and verse seven that says the end of all things is near. And we did an extended look about the coming judgment and the second coming. And what we notice, especially from 2 Peter, is that God is being patient. Why hadn't he come back yet? He promised 2,000 years plus ago that he was coming back. The readers who Peter was writing and to whom Paul was writing in in the book of Thessalonians, they expected Jesus to come tomorrow. They expected it to be imminent. Why hasn't he come back yet? And in 2 Peter, Peter tells us that it's because God is patient. God is waiting. God is wanting to give everybody an opportunity to repent. God wants to save as many people as possible. But eventually, eventually God's patience will end and judgment will come. In the days of Noah, it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. For 120 years, God waited. For 120 years, God was patient. But then his patience ended and judgment came. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't a time thing. It was a people thing. Abraham says to God, oh, God, you're too merciful. You wouldn't destroy the whole place for 50 righteous. If there were 50 righteous people living there, would you? And God said, no, I wouldn't. Abraham apparently knew what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham thought to himself, there ain't 50 people in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
How about if we, I talk you down to 40? God says, okay, 40, 30, 20. Gets all the way down to 10. And I think at that point, even Abraham realized time had come for judgment. Don't you think it's strange? I always thought it was strange that in that, you know, that little negotiation that he had, why didn't he go to five? You know, he got to 10. He, 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 uh, uh, you know, got haggled. That's the word I was looking for. He haggled God down to 10. Why didn't he haggle him down to five? I think Abraham understood that God's patience had been stretched as far as it was going to be stretched. And judgment came on Sodom and Gomorrah. Nineveh, a wicked, evil, non-God-fearing country. God was ready to destroy them, but he sends Jonah to offer them repentance and salvation. Jonah's patience had already worn thin. Jonah hated the Ninevites. Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to repent. Jonah didn't want God to have patience with the Ninevites. So Jonah takes a boat and heads off. Three days in the belly of the fish changed his mind, sort of. He did what God said, but not with a pure heart, I don't think. Because he went up on the hill and was waiting for the fire and the brimstone. He wanted a Sodom and Gomorrah moment on Nineveh. And when it didn't happen, he pouted. God says, what's wrong with you? Jonah says, I knew this was going to happen. I knew you were merciful. I knew you'd be patient. And I knew if they repented, you wouldn't bring the, the destruction on them that I was really hoping to see. But you know what? A few years later, God's patience ran thin with Nineveh. And they were destroyed. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel. And said, repent, repent, repent. And they didn't. And so God brings the Assyrians on them. And they defeat them and carry them off into, and deport them all over the country. He waited another 130 years for Judah. He sent more prophets and more prophets and more prophets. And said, look, what happened to Israel can happen to you if you don't change your ways. And they didn't. And God sent Babylon and took them off into captivity. But God is patient. He's patient. And he's waiting. He's waiting until evil threatens, I believe, evil threatens to overcome good. And when evil threatens to over... Now we know, and maybe I haven't explained this well. Maybe I don't understand it well is why I haven't explained it well. We understand that in the end, good has overcome evil, right? We understand that basically good has already overcome evil. But there are still battles and wars being fought down here. And when evil threatens to overcome good, God's MO, that's when he brings judgment. When Evil threatens to overcome good in this world. That's when I believe God is going to bring judgment to this world. Well, there's many passages in the New Testament that talk about the coming judgment and the destruction of the world. And all of them have a therefore to it. 
In 2 Peter, he said, what kind of people ought you to be in light of the fact that judgment is coming? And there's a therefore here as well. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administrating God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. I think the King James says is the oracles of God. I like that word. He should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. In light of Jesus' return, because judgment is coming, since the end of all things is near, Peter encourages us to live in a way that is acceptable to God. Because God is coming. Woo, my voice is changing. (laughs) Only it got higher. That's not good. Because God, Jesus is coming, because judgment is coming, you can't just live any way you want to. You've got to live the way God wants you to. And so he goes on here to explain what that is. He says, first of all, be clear-minded and self-controlled. What does he mean by clear-minded? How many of you have had a uh, concussion before? Got a few in here? I've had two. One diagnosed and one undiagnosed. Some of you, I won't go into the whole story, but some of you will remember the story about the time that I borrowed Junior Cox's pickup truck and I backed off the back of it. Connie Watkins was a witness to it. She's back there laughing. It was the weirdest experience. I got the tailgate down. I'm in the back of the pickup truck. I'm backing up and I get to the end of the tailgate and I don't even realize it. And I start falling straight backwards and I have no sensation that I am falling. I didn't put my hands out to try to catch myself. I didn't try to cover my head because I had no idea I was falling until my head cracked on the driveway. Mark, Jew, that's why there's a big crack in your driveway over there. It's from my head. Went to the hospital, had a CAT scan or whatever. They said, you got, you got a concussion. I said, thank you. I kind of knew that. Second concussion I had, those of you that went to Brazil two years ago, you'll remember this. We were out there playing soccer. And for some reason, I don't know why, I think they scored a goal on us or whatever. And I had the bright idea to jump up and grab a hold to the top of the soccer goal. Not knowing that one, the soccer goal was not bolted down. And two, not knowing the physics of the fact that my weight was going to pull the soccer goal over on me. But you know the odd thing? I obviously have an equilibrium problem. Because the exact same thing happened that happened before. I'm falling backwards with the goal coming down on top of me, and I don't even realize it. I have no sensation that I am falling backwards. I hear people gasping, and I'm like, what are they gasping at? And I go crash I hit my head now I got up you know you know how we do like when we fall or we trip we try to get up like no big deal 
Anybody see that? I did it on purpose. I got up and I tried to act like nothing was wrong. But you know, they talk about seeing stars. That's real. That's real. There were all kinds of things floating in front of me. Now that was undiagnosed. (laughs) But it, it, it just makes your head kind of fuzzy. You're there, but you're not really there. Some of you have been really sick, you know, maybe with a high fever. You kind of had the same experience. You're there, but it's kind of like it's an out-of-body experience. You're not really there. Peter says you need to be clear-minded. Because you see, Satan is out there. And what Satan is trying to do, he is trying to muddle our minds. He is trying to confuse us. Especially when it comes to our priorities in life. And he'll throw this out and he'll throw this out and all of a sudden our brains kind of become scrambled. Our minds kind of become scrambled. And and we think that this is important when we really know that it isn't. And and so our minds are just not very clear. And Peter's saying, hey, Jesus is coming back. Judgment is coming. So you need to have a clear mind. You need to be level-headed. That's why it's important To set our priorities and values when we are clear-minded. You know, I don't know if they still do it. I'm not 100% sure. But, you know, in the olden days, you know, when when you're going to make out a will, it would start with this. I so-and-so being of sound mind and judgment, right? Because they they want you to know. And you may need to get some witnesses to prove that you were of sound mind. When you sign this. Now, for some of us, it'd be difficult to find a time when we might get two witnesses to say that we were of sound mind. But anyway. But because those are decisions that you want to make when you are of sound mind. When you are clear-headed. I tell, tell this to the young people. When I teach the young people and we're, and we're talking about, you know, uh, sexual immorality. I tell them. Now, right now, when you are thinking clearly, you set out your values. You decide now what you will and you won't do when it comes to dating and, you know, and and all that kind of stuff. You do it now. I didn't do it with the junior high. I ain't dating yet, although some say they are, and I say, boy, you ain't dating. But anyway, that's the point. You do it now. When you're thinking clearly, when you're level-headed. Because when you're on that date, and you're alone on that county road, or alone in the house, you ain't clear-minded. You're not thinking straight. So you decide those values, those morals, when you are clear-minded. And the same is true with the rest of us. Whether it's our priorities in life, what's important to us, what we value, what we are, we aren't going to do. We decide that when we are clear-minded. Before Satan starts messing with us and kind of makes it all cloudy. Now, he also goes on here and says not just be clear-minded, but also be self-controlled. This is the second of three times that Peter encourages us to be self-controlled. In First Peter, in chapter 1 and verse 13, if you remember, he said, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. And then we know in chapter 5 and verse 8, 
that he says, be self-controlled and alert because your adversary prowls around like the roaring lion. But we'll get to that when we get there. You know, 22 weeks from now or whenever that will be. But this is the second of three times that Paul tells us to be self-controlled. And what I found out, and I think we all found out when we studied Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, that is not really so much being what we think of as self-controlled, but being Spirit-controlled. Because I'll be honest with you. I know myself well enough that being self-controlled isn't always the best thing. You know what I mean? Now, I know what Peter's trying to say here. I know, I know what he's saying. But when we allow the Spirit to control us, then our self becomes better. When we allow the Spirit to lead us, then the self becomes what God wants us to be. And it pushes aside that human nature and desires and the tendencies and eventually, they're gone. As we look toward the coming judgment, we must be clear-minded and self-controlled. Secondly, he says that we need to love each other deeply. Peter says, above all else, love each other deeply. You know, I noticed this was, uh, you know, I don't know about guys, I don't know about y'all, but, but uh, you know, my wife changes things in our house. And it's a trap, isn't it? It's a trap to see how long it takes you to notice that you change things. But I'm sitting there yesterday, and Kenya's gone. She went to help her, her sister move this weekend, so she, she's not even at the house. And so yesterday, I'm, I'm in the kitchen, and, uh, and I'm washing dishes <laughs> or putting dishes in the sink. I don't, you know. I'm washing dishes, and I look up, and lo and behold, there is a, a new plaque. In my den. I don't know if it's one of, if Michelle did it, it looked like something Michelle probably did. But I look at that and it says, above all else, love each other deeply. And I'm like, hey, I know where that came from. I don't know where that plot came from. I don't know where that sign, I don't know how long it's been hanging there. But I know that verse. Paul says in Colossians, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 1 Corinthians 13 ends with these words. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Jesus told his disciples, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. You have love for one another. Love is not, this love thing is important. It's necessary. It's commanded. It's not optional. Peter, Paul, and Jesus, they didn't say, love one another if y'all are lovable. Love one another, you know, if, if, if they love you back, love one another. No, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. It's essential. 
It's a command. Doesn't that just fly in the face of how we look at love, especially in our culture? Because we look at love as an emotion. And we can't control our emotions, can we? I mean, you know, love just kind of hits you, you know? We fall in and we fall out of love. You know, it's just one of those things. But God commands us to love one another. Which means it's more than an emotion. It's it's part emotion. But it is a decision that we make. It is a decision that we make. I choose to love you. You choose to love me even when I am unlovable. You choose to love me even when I have hurt you. You choose to love me even when I need your forgiveness. It's a choice that we make. Now, I think that choice that we make is wrapped up in the emotion of understanding the love that God has had for us. When we understand the love that God has had for us, when I understand the love that God has had for me, I'm not going to have any problem loving you. Well, I won't say no problem. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because I understand the love that God has had for me. Notice the extent of this love that we're to have for each other. Here, Peter says, love each other deeply. Remember when we were in Romans chapter 12, talking about the the transformed life. He said, love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. It's not a surface kind of love. It's not an insincere love. It's a deep, sincere love that we have for one another. And Jesus said, that's how people are going to know that you are my disciples. That you love one another. And then he goes on and he says that really interesting thing. Love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? What what does it mean love covers a multitude of sins? Well, there's one interpretation that takes it all the way back again to God's love. And that it's God's love that has brought salvation and it's God's forgiveness that, that, you know, wipes away our sins and washes away our sins. And so in that sense, God's love for us covers, does away with, washes away, whatever, a multitude and all of our sins. True or false? Well, it's true. It's true. But in the context of this verse, I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. Because he's not talking about God's love for us here. He's talking about our love for one another. So when he says it'd be a little, it'd be a little off if, if in the middle of talking about our love for one another, he throws in this thing about God's love for us and then keeps going on and doesn't explain that a little bit. So I think that in the context here, when he says love covers a multitude of sins, he's talking about our love for each other. Okay. All right. Now then, what does that mean for us? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. Okay, 
it does not mean that our love for each other condones sin in each other's lives. Not mean that. It does not mean that our love for each other hides, in a sense, the sins of one another. But I'll tell you what I do think it means. I think it means, number one, that when it comes to our personal relationship, that when I love you, I'm going to get over things that just don't mean much. When I love you, I'm not going to hold things against you. Even if you actually do things to me that might give me a right to hold it over you, in my mind, I'm not going to do that. Because I love you. But I also think there's another aspect to this. If I love you, and I catch you in a sin, I'm not going to expose that to everybody. I'm not going to out you in sins. I'm going to come to you individually. And I'm going to try to help you. And I'm going to try to, to, to work through that. So that you're not unduly hurt by what you've done. I'll give you an example. And I never thought about this. This, you know, comes from one of the commentaries that I read. You remember that in Genesis, I think it's 9, after, after Noah and his family come off the ark, it says that Noah began to grow grapes. Uh oh. And because he began to grow grapes, he began to make wine. And because he made wine, he began to drink wine. And it says one night Noah got drunk. And it says that he lay in his tent naked and uncovered. And then it says that the next morning his son Ham comes in and he sees his father in that vulnerable, compromising position. And what does Ham do? Ham goes out and he finds his brothers Shem and Japheth and says, you're not going to believe what I just found in the tent. Daddy's in there all naked and exposed, drunk out of his mind. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And then it says that Shem and Japheth grab a cloak, walk in the tent backwards so as not to see their father in that condition and cover him up. When Noah wakes up and realizes what has gone on, he curses Ham. And curses his descendants because of what Ham did. What did Ham do? Ham unnecessarily exposed his father's sin. What Ham should have done is exactly what his two brothers did without telling his two brothers. Without exposing his father to more shame. 
And I think that when Peter says here that love covers a multitude of sins, I think he's kind of talking about that same thing with us. If I find something out about you, I don't need to be going tell everybody and exposing everybody, which then makes it more difficult for you to come back from that. You know what I mean? Not condoning it. Not trying to cover it up in the sense of just, just hiding it and pretending it, it never happened. But not unnecessarily unduly exposing what you've done to people. Keeping it between her. Now, if I come to you and, and you know, Matthew 18 says, if I come to you and, and you know, you're just not going to listen, you don't care, then there's another way. But again, not undo, you find another person keeping it as small as possible. We should help each other, prop each other up, not expose each other, humiliate each other, or shame each other. And thirdly, he says that we ought to serve with God-given gifts. We've seen from 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians chapter 4, the idea of the church is a body. One body and many parts. Each of us with different gifts, talents, and abilities. Clearly given by God. Not simply used in the making of a living or providing for our family. But to be used to the glory of God and more specifically, I believe, in his church, in his kingdom, in his body. Do we really want to answer for how we use the gift of God, the gifts that God has blessed us in every aspect except in his church? God has blessed me with this ability. God has blessed me with this talent. And I use it to make a living. I may even use it in the community. I may use it here. I may use it there. But never use it to serve God. Never use it to help his church, to help the church family, to help the body. There are so many areas in which to serve the church body. There is so much that goes on within the church. So many opportunities, so many ways to use your talents. Now, you may feel, feel, well, there's a word that you might feel. Overwhelmed, that's not the word. Well, we're not going to sit here all day. Uh, you, you Intimidated. Thank you. The vibes were coming this way. You might feel intimidated because you think you have this talent, but then here's somebody that you know has that talent. And boy, are they good at that? I don't know if I can, I can do that. But I can almost assure you that that person didn't start out using his talent to that extreme. They started out having to practice. They started out having to mess up. They started out, you know, having to, 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 to learn. But you don't quit. You don't give up. You continue to use God's, the gifts God gives you. I told you all before, I mentioned this, but, you know, uh, when we moved to Searcy and we were going to Westside Church there, they had two services in the Sunday morning service. They really didn't have a song leader. And so the, the, the main song leader asked me, can you lead singing? That's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> I'm like, can I? 
Yes. He said, we really need somebody to lead singing in the early service. Would you do that? I'm like, I'll give it a try. You know, I'd been to song leading schools, song leading classes. But I hadn't really led singing in worship in a long, long time. Because the church we came from had a song leader. He led all the time. So nobody else really, really got a chance. And so I'm in there and I'm getting ready to lead singing. And there's Bible professors from Harding in there. The chairman of the music department was there. And so I'm going through and I'm picking out my songs and I'm practicing. You know, I'm practicing in the mirror. You practice in the mirror? No. Yeah, well, you don't need to. But I'm practicing in the mirror. And all this stuff, you know, trying to get all the hand, everything right. And I wanted to start off with, with, a, with a song, you know, a peppy song. And if you remember the old songs of the church, great songs of the church, little blue book. You know, there weren't as many peppy songs. The one song that we did have was I Know That My Redeemer Lives, right? I know, I know. So I'm like, okay, that's going to be a good peppy one. And I remember, you know, what I'd learned in song leading school. You hold the songbook out like this. No, you don't put it on here. You hold it out like this. And you lead singing. And we're getting into it, and I'm leading singing, and we get to the I know, I know, and I go, I know, boom, and there goes my songbook. <laughs> Up against the back wall. Totally humiliated. It's kind of like walking off the back of a pickup truck. There's really no way to come back from that. You know? So I finished the song. Luckily, it was one of those songs, you know, that I knew all the verses, didn't really need the book, you know? And then I just, you know, went and picked up a songbook. But, you know, we don't quit. We keep going. We keep using the gifts that God has given us to His glory. So Peter reminds us the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. Therefore, therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Therefore, love each other deeply. Therefore, serve God with your God-given gifts. And we talked about this before, that idea that Jesus is coming back, that judgment is coming, that the end of all things is near. Is that a threat? Or a promise. Folks, to the people of God, to the children of God, that ought to be a promise. That ought to be something that we are looking forward to, but we need to be living the way that God wants us to live. If you're here this morning in some way, we can help or encourage you as we all prepare for that judgment to come. Would you come? We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D. C-O-C dot O-R-G 
or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com, or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 818- West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Her meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.